Welcome to Innovations of Health, a podcast that gives you the latest in healthcare trends and news. We'll be sharing advances in digital technology and breakthroughs in healthcare that eases people's way and provides a better healthcare future for all. Welcome to our broadcast. I'm your host, Sara Vaezi, Chief of Digital and Growth Strategy for Providence. As a reminder, the information provided during today's event is for informational purposes only. For any medical questions, please reach out to your primary care or healthcare professional. Now let's begin. I'm excited for today's conversation. Uh, joining me for this event is Doug, Doug Grapsky. He's a senior manager of digital strategy within the Providence Digital Innovation Group. I get the pleasure of getting to work with him every day. And uh, hey, Doug, uh, nice to see you. Um, so Doug and I are going to be talking today about um, a, a sort of series of reports and a tremendous amount of research that Doug has done over the course of the last uh, couple of years um, around industry consolidation, some of the impacts that COVID has had, and generally the trends that we're seeing and some of the implications for digital as well as for um, health systems more generally. So um, it should be a really interesting conversation. And um, uh, before we just jump right in, Doug, just uh, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell the, the folks a little bit about what you're working on within digital innovation today. Sure. Great. Thanks, Sarah. And yeah, happy to be here. And uh, you know, hello to everyone out there. Uh, so I'm uh, Doug Grapsky, a senior manager on the, the province uh, digital strategy team. Um, and, and really what we're going to be focusing on today is just how we've seen uh, COVID accelerate um, a lot of a lot of trends in the digital healthcare space. Um, and then, you know, talking about what are the implications across payers, um, looking into some of the trends around, uh, you know, how provider uh, provider landscapes and provider employment has shifted over the past couple of years, and then um, ultimately kind of dig into what does that mean for health systems? The whole the whole competitive landscape has evolved, and um, you know, what does that what does that mean for us that are uh, traditional health systems, and, and how should we respond? Uh, awesome. So uh, let me just start with this question, which is like, of course, the last couple of years has been really a constant state of flux, a lot of um, disruptive care models emerging, a lot of capital flowing, a lot of really interesting exits, um, uh, a lot of just acceleration of some pre-existing themes. Um, last year, you had made some predictions about what we thought would happen around industry consolidation um, and uh, you know, in your view, you know, I know you segmented kind of the different types of consolidators and the different sources of value. Um, you want to break it down for us? How good was our crystal ball? Um, you know, how did it kind of um, come out related to the different segments, if you want to get into that? Um, and uh, let's start there. Sure, sure. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think our Overall report, we were, we were right on some of the, the more obvious things, thankfully. Um, so we'll take that as a win. Um, but some of the biggest trends that we predicted and, and ultimately saw was, um, you know, the acceleration of uh, care into the you know, more distributed models, um, acceleration of care into, into the home. There's a just a, a litany of, of transactions that have happened around um, home-based solutions and, um, you know, uh, getting more care directly into the, um, you know, into consumers' homes. Those are some of the, the biggest trends that we saw. Um, you know, also a big shift into more ambulatory settings, um, especially thinking about some of the, you know, ambulatory surgical centers, things like that. 
um, where we just saw you know, tremendous growth of, of utilization throughout the pandemic with fewer patients wanting to come into hospitals for uh, fear reasons, safety concerns, all of those, um, all of those things. So some, some pretty big trends there. Um, I think some of the things that we didn't um, predict as well or, or didn't kind of see in our crystal ball, um, you know, I think one, one area that we had called out the, of being less strategically important going into the pandemic and, and really we still saw a ton of activity was around um, uh, academic medical centers, a lot of critical care hospitals. There were still a lot of ac uh, acquisitions in that space. There was a lot of movement and focus in that area. Um, and I think we got a little hyper-focused on, um, you know, some of the, the uh, trends at home and kind of, you know, forgot about or, or didn't think as critically about, hey, those are still really important assets. Um, we still have to deliver that type of care. Not everything can be done over telehealth. Not everything can be done on um, you know, that outpatient setting. Um, and so that was some movement, some activity that we didn't necessarily see or, or predict, uh, but we definitely kind of saw that come to fruition. Um, and then I'd say the other, the other big thing, I think we had initially thought of the COVID waves as this big, you know, uh, one initial wave, um, you know, that we're gonna ride it out and it was gonna kind of slowly, you know, uh, trickle out. And I think, you know, most of the world was kind of caught off guard by that, but I think the recurring waves have just continued to make it um, much harder for health systems to recover, to kind of recover a lot of that lost care, um, to get operations back on track, a lot of those things. You know, it's becoming a, uh, you know, part of our daily routines and part, and part of that within our uh, daily operations, but um, just the recurring waves and uh, what that's done to uh, health systems financially has impacted decisions downstream, um, led to staffing challenges, and there's, there's a lot more we could unpack there as well. And I think you might have muted yourself. <laughs> Sorry, my notifications are going off quite crazy. So I'm trying to minimize the disruption. Of course, I um, I committed the uh, uh, <laughs> the ultimate sin of uh, uh, online online presentations. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, uh, you know this kind of trend that you had talked about with respect to national scale and um, the consolidation activity around that, and in particular. Um, pay providers, you know, this sort of payer provider um, who is ac accelerating their growth and the last couple of years have been really interesting for them. So um, uh, what what have you what have we seen there? Can you give me some examples and what do you think is going to happen from here? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I think, yeah, th that's this trend of the of the pay pay providers been happening for, you know, for several years, but I, I totally think uh, COVID was a catalyst and, and really just accelerating, um, you know, the level of act activity that's happened, the, the uh, numbers of acquisitions that have happened in that space. Um, I mean, it, it goes without saying Optum, United Health Group, um, you know, they're kind of continue to be the elephant in the room. I think they've snuck up on a lot of people. You look at uh, a lot of industry experts and what, and what folks are, um, you know, kind of writing about them. People are surprised at the, you know, the billions of dollars in revenue that they're, uh, you know, sharing out on their quarterly reports. And I think, I even think I saw a number that they served over 100 million unique patients over the last year. So in, in 2021, I think it was, they touched over 100 million lives. So that's nearly a third of the whole whole country. Um, so they're a, a massive company um, that just keeps keeps getting bigger. Um, so Optum being the delivery part of United Health Group, United being the, uh, the payer functions and a lot of the corresponding uh, payer services. Um, Optum, I think last year set a goal of employing an additional 10,000 providers. Um, and they've, you know, I believe they've, they've been on track to meet that. I'm not sure if they officially met it, um, but they've uh, quickly been growing their provider group size and, um, you know, 
targeting uh, uh, primary care groups, uh, encroaching into multi-specialty clinics, things like that. Um, they own, you know, a, a major ASC uh, footprint as well. So they really kind of uh, garnered, garnered a, a big piece of the landscape, and it, it really lets them, um, you know, on the United Health side, it, it lets them uh, own more of that premium dollar up front. They can control where that goes, um, and then they also have the ability to to control rates in a given market if they have uh, big enough market penetration. And it lets them set rates uh, within that for their own for their own providers, and then as they're um, paying, actually paying their own providers, um, they can control, have a little bit more control, a little bit more um, say into like what their medical loss ratios will look like, um, into how profits get distributed within under the the larger uh, United Healthcare umbrella. Um, so you've seen these these big revenues, um, you know, come through for United. Um, but what they've been able to do is actually uh, kind of keep more of that money and, and shift it accordingly, so they can hit um, you know federal mandate federal mandated. Uh, uh, medical loss ratios and, and make sure where the uh, premium dollar is actually getting spent as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talked a little bit about like Optum's growth goals and I think they may, you know, um, even before their uh, target of hitting an additional 10,000 employers, uh, pardon me, providers as um, employed within Optum, they were the largest, essentially the largest medical group in the country. Right. Um, so, um, what do you think will be the ongoing potential impact of that on health systems, especially in light of this um, workforce uh, uh, crisis that was sort of always like in the background, right? It's been looming for some time, but got significantly accelerated over the course of the last couple of years. Like, what do you think the impact of that's going to be? And anything from a consolidation perspective, like to um, uh, kind of counteract that? Yeah, so I think the the one of the biggest things that will happen is they they do have the ability to control navigation. So site of care, uh, which provider groups they're going to. So first and foremost, like that ability to navigate to route patients, that's going to impact health systems. Um, if those you know specialty downstream referrals aren't coming through, um, that's going to have a negative impact on health systems. Um, for a lot of our you know our own specialty groups and some of the downstream uh, services that will come from that. And then secondly, kind of the, the bigger looming picture of what does that mean for, um, you know, recruiting physicians, uh, retaining that, that clinical and medical, like that medical group talent, it gets, it gets harder and harder. Um, I think the, the numbers I've seen um, over the, I think it was over the year, uh, the course of uh, 2021, but an additional 10 to uh, 13%, I believe of, of providers um, actually left health systems to join uh, kind of like corporate entities, whether it's a, a retailer like Walgreens, CVS, someone like that, or a, um, you know, be or be employed by um, one of the big uh, pay, you know, pay riders like an Optum. So we're losing ten to, I think it was ten to thirteen percent. So it was around 30,000 providers uh, just left in, uh, over the past year alone. That's just going to further, um, you know, constrain health systems, limit what we can do, and then those it, it it can. And I'm a little bit nervous that it'll lead to some sort of uh, spiraling effect where. Uh, the same provide the providers who are left um, end up with more patients, more of the burden. Um, they're still stuck stuck dealing with some of the administrative burdens as well of, of working within a larger health system. Um, so that's um, you know definitely top of mind for us and thinking about um, how do we continue to to serve our patients uh, to deliver high quality you know high quality care to our patients. That's that's top of mind and, and really what we're we're here to do. Um, but that it just gets increasingly competitive to to retain those.
providers and, and keep them in house and employed. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, we talked about Optum, which is, of course, a subsidiary of United Health Group, but even within the BUCAs, the Blue Cross, United, um, Cigna, and Anthem, like within those four, there are different strategies, right, as it relates to um, provider employment, provider consolidation. Um, and uh, what can you tell us a little bit just like so we already talked about Optum, they're really going the like more employment route. Can, tell us a little bit about the other strategies that are out there. And then um, which kind of general trend do you think is ultimately going to win out? Sure. So the yeah, the the, the overarching trend or uh, theory that you know the the pay buyers are are tackling is hey, we want to own more of the primary uh, of the premium dollar. Then we actually like you know deliver that care as well. So you're keeping um, you're not just keeping the premium um, and distributing it out and paying it to a you know any any old provider down the road. Um, you're paying it to an entity that you own, or what other uh, other payers are doing is they're actually setting up, establishing uh, value-based contracts with uh, other provider organizations. And so mm -hmm. um, there's uh, they will maintain and, and kind of keep some skin in the game, if you will, um, and, and helping make sure that that uh, provider is delivering quality care, that they're meeting outcomes thresholds. Um, there's a lot of ways you could structure a value-based care arrangement, but um, generally speaking, they'll have um, some upside risks and uh, upside and downside risk. It could go all the way to, um, you know, the furthest end of the spectrum would be like a, a global capitation arrangement or a full cap arrangement where all of the, you, you know, as the provider you're receiving all of the premium money, um, you know, to deliver care. And it's ultimately your responsibility to kind of cover that patient from, you know, through their whole continuum of their of their care journey um, versus just carving out certain pieces of it where you'll get uh, a certain percent of the premium to care for primary care or a certain percent of the premium to care for uh, 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 child procedures and, and birthing procedures, things like that. Um, so what we're seeing with, um, in, in contrast with Optum, um, you'll see Anthem and a lot of the regional blues plans have actually said, hey, we're not gonna go down the route of, of owning the providers, um, it's expensive. A lot of providers don't necessarily want to lose that autonomy if they're practicing independently. That's something um, they really value. So they don't really want to have to adhere to other standards, change their systems. It's it's hard. That's yep. um, a lot of. Um, so what what Anthem is doing is is saying, hey, we're going to work with you to establish these value based care arrangements. We're going to provide um, you know a, a technology support or a tech wraparound to enable that contract and make sure that we're. Um, better facilitating that contract and helping you maintain that, you know, better maintain the outcomes for that patient. And then we can actually, um, you know, between the payer and you as the provider, um, track how well that's going and understand what that means for our, um, you know, for our arrangement. And so it kind of lets them, um, it facilitates that arrangement. It, it eases it, if you will, um, on behalf of the provider, um, but they're not actually having to own and recruit those physicians. Um, so it's, it's a different approach, um, mainly seen through, uh, the regional blues and what what anthem is doing if i had to look into the future and say um uh, who's going to win <laughs> i think my, my my approach is always to go look at look at history and see what uh, history reveals but uh, i think going back into like the early 2000s mid 2000s optum started down that pathway of, of uh you know, supporting contracts and figuring out how they can better mm -hmm. partner with re uh, specific provider groups and regions I don't think it went as well. It's hard to track all the numbers all the way through, but they've shifted their strategy to owning the providers. And I imagine there's a reason why. Um, <laughs> I think my, my biggest hypothesis is that it's just going to be around. It's much harder to have those physicians 
operate against those contractual obligations. Um, it's hard for them to change. Um, the way they're practicing um, to think about those kind of standards as they're delivering care, um, they're focused on doing what's best and what's right for the patient all the time. And if the, um, if the contract isn't necessarily as optimized as it could be, it's just going to be an extra burden, an extra headache for them. And so I think it's, it's just, the, I think what Optum or what United learned at least is just easier to own them outright. We can kind of change, control everything um, mm. versus what the lesson that maybe Anthem will learn, maybe not. Um, that it's those are harder uh, harder deals to arrange, harder contracts to um, you know to truly put into action uh, than it may seem. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things come out. There's certainly a level of um, integration challenges, incentive challenges that are uh, present in the non-employed model, right? That mm -hmm. um, will make it more difficult to operationalize potentially. Um, uh, okay, let's shift gears a little bit. So, um, uh, digital first home-based modalities, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of di digitally enabled care in general has seen a huge level of, uh, M&A acquisition activity. And a lot of like companies are just getting really high valuations. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what stands out to you um, when we when we think about this, and do you think that trend is going to continue? Um, and uh, I'll stop there, and then I'm going to take a question actually from our audience as well. Sure, sure. Um, so I think the the biggest thing that I've noticed is both the depth and the breadth that a lot of companies are are looking to achieve. Um, a lot of the digital first modalities um, and, and those care models is there. They're not only saying, hey, we're going to just serve um, this small uh, employer population where it's a, a likely a, um, you know, a high commercial payer mix, things like that. Like you've seen with um, like perhaps what one medical started off doing, um, but they're also expanding way, way broader. So they're going, um, you know, taking that broad stance approach and they um, and they acquired Iora. So they've picked up a, a Medicare Advantage um uh, company as well, uh, or a you know a provider that covers uh, Medi the Medicare Advantage population, and so they kind of started off as this um, niche focus on a, a single population, and then they expanded really broadly. Um, so that's like one big example or big trend that I think we saw. And then on top of that, a lot of these um, you know tech first companies have then added to a lot of depth into it as well. So we're saying, hey, we're not just going to deliver that care through these these types of channels. We're also going to add on all these other program components. Um, whether it's uh, you know pharmacy delivered to people's homes um, and a lot of the pharmaceuticals that are you know shipped directly to your house, or um, even some of the remote monitoring programs out there, we saw a lot of uh, you know clinics um, and other companies pick up uh, remote monitoring assets that had been around for a while that always kind of um, struggled with some of some of the engagement, some of the adoption that we think uh, we thought we would see probably two, three, four, five, six years ago. Um, that didn't come to fruition. They said, hey, we have an engaged population. We have a better uh, way to tie them in, better way to integrate them into our, our care model. And so we saw a lot of those other kind of, I think some of those kind of enabling technologies or um, enabling assets get added into um, some of these portfolios. And so I think they're really trying to round out, you know, uh, round out what they can deliver. Um, what are all the different touch points that you can engage with a patient throughout that care model? Um, then also just expand the the breadth of the services or the population that uh, that they provide services to. Um, so 
a related question then from the audience. So how, what do you see, and I know you've worked on this um, uh, a little bit. So what do you, what, where do you see RPM, remote patient monitoring, playing a role um, with respect to what you just dis discussed around kind of the coverage around broader populations, the connectivity into the system, this sort of um, hybrid uh, care model that a lot of folks have been talking about that um, bridges physical and digital, like um, how, do you, how do you see it improving patient outcomes, access to care, like in perhaps like in geographically remote areas, um, more convenient care. Just, just tell me a little bit more about that. What do you, what do you think is going to happen in that space? Yes, I think I, I, where I've seen remote monitoring programs be uh, more successful than not is where it's for like a targeted or a, a um, more specific use case. So I'm thinking like a great example is a lot of chronic care conditions. Um, and looking at like it's, it'd be um, we've explored this at Providence, and I'd say it's. It's hard at a system level to integrate a remote monitoring program at large um, uh, without focusing hyper focusing on specific populations. So if we're going to say if we're going to tackle um, a specific chronic care, uh, so think um, uh, think think about diabetes. We want to better uh, you know track patients' glucose throughout the day. The companies that have like uh, scaled a um, scaled a solution a care model really well focused on that patient population. I think they're going to be able to integrate a um, integrate a remote monitoring program really well into that care model, where it's um, you know additional touch points, mm. uh, where they're you know collecting that you know not just collecting your information, but they actually have the team and the infrastructure on the other side to to collect it, interpret it, and then um, reach back out to you as the patient um, and actually interact with you, make suggestions, change the care model, change uh, the prescription, like kind of having that that continuous feedback loop where it's, um, you know, they're engaging with the patient um, much, much more frequently than you would in a traditional care model where, um, you know, you get your uh, blood work pulled uh, however many times a year, um, then you meet with your primary care doctor um, and they make recommendations, but it's much more sparse. It's not as quick of a feedback loop. Um, and it's just much more challenging to, to put it to, uh, you know, to scale within a big organization. But if you're focus on this uh, targeted population um, you're, and you're focused on a, like a specific use case, it gets much easier um, to, to make that change and to drive that better engagement with those patients. And I think that's really what will drive, uh, drive better outcomes ultimately for patients. Yeah, that's really interesting, Doug. I think I heard you say a couple of things that are like really important takeaways. Um, one is that it's, you know, kind of remote patient monitoring as a capability will only get you so far, right? It has to be, um, uh, it has to be built into an actual care model that is really like, think about it as a tech enabled service, um, not just as like, uh, delivering data and then ho hoping for the best, right? And then the second is yeah. like, in order for that care model to be effective, it needs to be targeted and segmented um, to a specific population. And I think that has a lot of implications like from a consolidation perspective, right? Like to your point around um, one medical acquiring um, Iora, it's um, folks are starting to get more sophisticated around not just the technology, but like how they think about populations and how all these different pieces kind of come together. Um, 
in a care model and in probably a broader platform to uh, to care for uh, well, folks in a more sort of personalized, segmented, uh, clinically appropriate, relevant way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so in that context, like, what do you think about point solutions um, uh, within uh, you know, within the context of digital health, um, uh, there are, of course, like thousands and thousands of point solutions out there. Um, and many of them are starting to get uh, uh, folded into other broader solutions. What do you think is going to be the, the trend there? Are we like moving away from point solutions? Do they have their place? Um, I happen to think they do have their place, um, but they just uh, over time become part of uh, broader, you know, sort of an integrated um, kind of approach to to care delivery uh, across the care, you know, a tech a, a tech enabled service um, for special populations. But what do you think about that? Yeah, no, good question. Really good question. I kind of my I think my perspective is it's getting increasingly harder to be a, a standalone point solution. I do think they're there's a lot of wraparound technologies that have been designed to integrate with them, um, like utilize them well and kind of pull their information back in. That said, I think it's harder to go to market or it will be harder to go to market perhaps as a point solution um, moving forward. And I think this, this certainly came to fruition with like the, uh, a lot of solutions that are sold directly into employers. Um, and there are some interesting articles that came out about, um, you know, the benefits administrators at, at big employers having a hard time differentiating between specific point solutions. Um, I think a lot of like, you could point to a lot of uh, you know, diabetes care management, a lot of wellness types of solutions, even um, I think it encroached into like the mental health space. Um, but the, the benefits were hard to delineate between the two. Um, and, the, and the benefits administrators were saying, we have a hard, you know, we're having a hard time picking one versus the other, but where the companies that had the greatest success Selling into those employers was, hey, we can offer that mental health solution, the diabetes specific solution, the wellness engagement platform, um, all of those together, and they actually tie into each other. They speak with each other. Um, you know, it's um, we're going to still charge you the same same amount, or maybe there's some some price negotiation, if you will, um, but rather they're they're integrated. They're like kind of uh, delivering a much more um, you know holistic approach, and it's a much easier for like the buyer to. To pick that and i think that started with employers um you know I, i'm not sure I, I imagine even some of the payers that will buy similar types of products might be experiencing that um and then even thinking about you know the who the other big buyers that are left are going to be health systems um you know they've been financially stressed throughout the pandemic they may not be the the biggest buyers moving forward but they're going to want simple things uh simple programs to run um, they're going to want fewer integrations into any ehrs that's always a um, costly endeavor. So like the, the fewer of those hits that, you know, you have to take administratively to get these programs up and running and achieve some of those goals. Um, I do think that will just make it a little bit harder for point solutions to just to function on their own. Yeah, let me, um, uh, I'm going to take another question. I know we only have like a couple minutes left. I'm going to take another question from the audience. Um, uh, which is a little bit uh, uh, referring to something you already talked about. How do you see asynchronous care fitting into the picture? Um, and uh, the this person says, you know, they think that the industry was fast to react to the pandemic by offering virtual visits by video, so like in real time. But what about modalities that like asynchronous um, chat, for instance, or messaging, which can improve patient access? Um, 
and generate efficiencies if through automation or assistive technologies. Um, what do you what do you think about that, and how does this fit into the consolidation picture? Yeah, yeah, great question. I think those those types of modalities, and I'm thinking of like um, a lot of like the chat based solutions. Ninety eight point six jumps into mind, um, but I, I do think those are they they have a place in you know in delivering care, and I do think they're probably some of the most effective at really providing a low cost solution. Um, that's kind of core to their, you know, core to their belief, core to their value prop. And I do think they're effective at it. Um, if you can communicate with a physician over text, um, you know, it's quick responses um, and it's, you know, relatively speaking, a, a low cost of, of delivery. I think that, you know, that has a place. Um, it's probably somewhere less than 10% of like the care that, you know, needs to be delivered, but there's, there's certainly some, um, you know, great use cases for that. It's very, very convenient for patients, um, for, for parents, new parents in particular. You, you don't want to leave the house. You want to get your questions answered. You want to be able to snap a quick picture on your phone. Um, and it, it doesn't get that much more convenient, um, you know, for, uh, for, for patients. Um, where that really will impact some of the, you know, kind of incumbent players is a lot of those, um, a lot of those visits will kind of be the, the first, um, you know, the first starting point or the first engagement point for a patient, if it can't be addressed through those asynchronous solutions, how does that care then get routed into the um, appropriate channels, whether it's a, an urgent care, whether it's an emergency room, whether it's, um, you know, a multi-special provider. Um, that's where like, uh, you know, uh, incumbent health systems and even some of the uh, uh, pay buyers will continue to have a play and say, hey, we got to figure out the routing. Um, we have to figure out how these will interact with each other. We need this kind of seamless information um, to, we need inf information to kind of transfer seamlessly. The last thing you, you know, we want to do for patients is say, Hey, repeat the same thing. You already told this, uh, told the provider on uh, over chat, you already sent pictures. They told you this information. Um, you know, I don't want to ask the same questions. It's a, it's a burden for uh, patients. Um, you know, it's, it's an administrative hurdle um, for our own providers to re-ask the same things. Um, and for patients to have the kind of repeat the conversation. So if we can kind of better intake those um, as referrals or um, whatever we kind of treat them as um, and, and integrate them into our kind of downstream more complex uh, care models, I think that'll be really, um, really important to do. It's easier said than done, but I think it'll really um, make, make those async visits um, much more valuable. Um, that you can trust kind of behind the scenes that you have those other connections into um, other providers as well. Uh, great. We are um, almost out of time. So I'm going to ask you like in the last uh, 30 to 45 seconds, <laughs> why should health systems care? Like what's the headline? What's the key takeaway for health systems as they think about all of this um, consolidation and other activity that's happening right now that is maybe a little bit um, new to them or uh, just different from the way that we're used to thinking about things? Yeah. So I think the um, biggest takeaway that I like to leave folks with is, um, you know, it's important to understand the, like how the competitive landscape has evolved. But then I think like what we really need to be better at is looking at all the assets that we as health systems already have. We already have, um, you know, distributed clinics. We have critical care um, capabilities. We have the, the requisite uh, physician networks. We kind of have all the assets that you need that everyone else is struggling to piece together. 
And I think we just have a, an opportunity to better um, to better utilize them, to better uh, allocate some of those services, some of those resources that we have, like making them making it easier for patients to schedule appointments. It sounds simple. It's not as, as we've learned. It's not as simple as we'd like it to be. Um, but I do think like if we could better uh, take our mental health providers for as an example, there's tremendous explosion of mental health, uh, you know, digital first, virtual first solutions out there. Um, and there's just a, a critical shortage of those types of providers. So I think it's the onus is on us to better expose, um, you know, our own our own uh, resources and assets and make it easier for patients to get in, to find us, to engage with us through different modalities, whether it's virtual or, or async to the question. Um, and, you know, think about it from a, um, it doesn't have to be through a traditional insurance route. It could be through, you know, other marketplace driven types of solutions that it's, um, kind of the onus is on health systems to evolve to catch up with the times a little bit but we do have all the components we just need to kind of redistribute them and, and re-expose them to our patients wonderful well thank you so much um doug for joining today and thank you uh for everyone who listened and um sending in your questions uh, to learn more about our initiatives, programs, services, ways to give, or if you're looking for medical care, please visit providence.org and make sure to follow us on social media at Providence Health System for LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and under Providence on Twitter. So thanks again, everybody. Thank you, Doug, and uh, looking forward to the next one of these. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Sarah.